Well, this morning I have the special privilege of of taking all of you on a journey to heaven. Last week was a journey to uh, somewhere else, right? We talked about hell last week, and so this week we get to talk about heaven. Um, I think Chris might have got the short end of the stick on that one, but uh, but as we open God's Word this morning and study John's prophetic vision of the new heavens and the new earth, we really will be going to heaven and back. It may not be 90 minutes in heaven, as a book reference, uh, unless if it's 50 with me and then 40 later with your quiet time or something. Um, we have a lot to cover in a short amount of time, so it will feel like a flight to heaven. After our time together in the Word, I hope that you will have all the proof of heaven you need. That you too can conclude without a doubt that heaven is for real. Another book title. May we be known in our community as the church who came back from heaven after this morning. And who knows, maybe instead of school or work, tomorrow we'll be waking up in heaven. Just kidding. So there's eight references right there to book titles on heaven and experiences in heaven and seeing heaven and coming back to earth to tell about it. Maybe it was a little bit of a stretch getting all that in the introduction, but it does show that there's a certain fascination in this world with what heaven is like. Can we know what it is like? Can we know for sure what is there, what isn't there? But it also shows... If you were to read through these books and see that the similarity of all of them in some way is that there's a general confusion about heaven. There's a general confusion about heaven. The only thing that I will say about those books on going to heaven and coming back to tell the story is this. You don't need someone to go to heaven or hell and come back to tell you that they exist when you have the scriptures that are sufficient. That is all I will say, because that's all that God has told us to say. Luke sixteen nineteen starts an interesting account of a rich man. A rich man, rich in this world, but not in the next. He, he died and he went to be tormented in Hades. This is Luke 16:19. He looked across a great chasm between heaven and hell, and he saw a poor beggar that he recognized when he was alive named Lazarus. Maybe you're familiar with this account. Lazarus, though poor in this life, was in heaven. And he was reclining with Abraham against Abraham's chest. The rich man in Hades begged Abraham across the chasm with a loud voice. Let, let this man go and tell my brothers. I have five brothers. Let Lazarus go to my father's house and warn my five brothers about the torment of hell and about the comfort of heaven. Abraham replied across the chasm. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. The rich man responded and says, No, it will be more likely that they listen and repent 
If someone came from after seeing and experiencing it, going to them and telling them and warning them that way. Abraham replied from heaven, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. That's a beautiful passage. That's a beautiful passage that talks about how we can know heaven and hell actually exist. Do we need someone to, to go there and to come back to tell us that they are real? No. One thing we need. One thing we need. As he said, Moses and the prophets, that's a reference to the scriptures. We have the scriptures. They tell us about what is there after this life and what we need. So this morning, we're going to continue to build our end times theology that we've been doing this summer. We're building an eschatology from the Bible, not from books or ideas or things that are popularized out there, because we need nothing else other than the scriptures. So the subject this morning is the final piece of our series, heaven. Heaven. Just even the thought of heaven should excite you, should cause you to think, Yes, tell me more. I want to know. Other words for heaven, you might hear me use these phrases, and I'm referring to the same thing. Heaven, a.k.a. the eternal kingdom of God. The eternal kingdom of God, a.k.a. the new heaven and the new earth. A.k.a. the eternal life that is in the new creation. That's what we're going with this morning, and is your titles on your papers. So we'll be spending the majority of our time in Revelation 21 to 22. And I want you to turn there with me. We're going to close out our Bibles. We're going to look at the last two chapters of God's revelation to us. And you're going to have the best picture, the best view of heaven that I could give you, that anybody could give you. This would be better than Lazarus coming back from Abraham's side and telling us all about it. We have John. John's words. We need to begin with something very important, though, as we descend into this text, starting with chapter 21. When we think about heaven, there are really two different models, and uh, I want to put these up on the screen. Uh, This is also something that I believe given you a handout for. This is your kind of supplemental handout that is there. There's two models, or really two ways to view heaven, and I want to throw a side-by-side comparison of these two things, because I wonder where you will land. I wonder where you will land. As we read through some of the characteristics or kind of ways of thinking of these two different models, I wonder if you'll be a little split, or I wonder if you'll be all on one side, and I wonder which side you will line up most on. So I wanted to highlight just a few of them. Uh, There's one model called the spiritual vision model, and there's another model called the new creation model. So the spiritual vision model and the new creation model. Let me describe these uh, as you see the phrases up here and and also on, on your handouts as well. When talking about salvation, the spiritual vision model views it as primarily spiritual, a spiritual activity, a spiritual matter pertaining to strictly spiritual things, not physical. Uh, In the new creation model, salvation can include physical things. So body and soul, body and spirit. 
The spiritual vision model, uh, when it, looking at our eternal destiny, um, is talking about a whole nother dimension or realm. Kind of like a, a state of existence. And a kind of a spiritualized uh, view of where this realm of heaven is. The new creation model teaches that there's uh, an eternal destiny on a renovated earth. A renovated earth. And the spiritual vision model talks about human desires that are all bad, that need to be escaped. But the new creation model talks about human desires and that they're implanted there by God if they're not sinful desires and they're not to be destroyed. The spiritual vision model says that physical things are bad or negative and we need to be freed from those physical things because they contain bad things. The new creation model, however, says that physical things are positive. Are positive. The spiritual vision model will say there's no eating or drinking in heaven. That is so this life and, and not heaven. The new creation model will say there's eating, drinking, celebrating, and the like. Just a, a few more for you here. Um, we have a... On the next slide, it says uh, the spiritual vision model will will talk about you know kind of this idea of singing and contemplation, singing and contemplation. Now, that is the primary activity of heaven, and a lot of us are probably thinking like, oh yeah, you know, I've been I've thought that that he- that's what heaven is really primarily all about. Um, but in the new creation model, not only singing and contemplating thoughts of God, but but there will be work, an activity. That glorifies God. You could say it this simply. This is really succinct. The spiritual vision model is non-earth. The new creation model is new earth. So the spiritual vision model is non-earth. This new creation model is new earth. You look at politics and society and culture. And in the spiritual vision model... Those things do not exist because they are the things of this life. When you look at the new creation model of heaven, you see that there is a sense of politics and society and and culture. And it does matter and it does exist. So those are just a few highlights of of these two different models. Um, This is something that uh, I, I think I wasn't really made aware of until studying heaven a little bit later in my life, and I was thankful that I came across this, because you know what? When I read through this, I think a lot of my view of heaven had to do with this spiritual vision model. It was kind of like the thinking that, you know, life here is going to be so, uh, like, way below what life is going to be like in heaven. It's going to be so radically different that you can't even imagine what it's going to be like in heaven. And so, okay, okay. so in my mind, I was thinking very unfamiliar thoughts, you know, I've, you know, maybe grown up thinking like, man, my, my body is filled with all kinds of wayward desires and sin. So body, bad. That's kind of what I, that's what I went to in thinking. I don't know if you have gone there in your minds. When you think of your body, you think of, can't wait to get rid of this body. But then to what? To become a ghost? To become an angel? To become something non-material in heaven? And there is a, I think there's a, there's going to be, if you land on one side or the other, it's going to be, it's going to dramatically impact your approach to a passage like the one that we're coming into. 
So looking at this handout or looking at the screen above, you're going to see that there's a number of reasons, uh, probably, well, you see up there, and that there are a number of reasons why the spiritual vision model has probably been so prevalent for lot, lots of years, probably since the beginning of the church has been around. Uh, one of those reasons is because you, we probably tend to mix up our concept of heaven now with heaven in the future. That's one reason why we probably have more of a spiritual view or spiritual vision model, and that is the intermediate state. The intermediate state is a temporary place where if you were to die today, you would go to be with God immediately in your spirit, not with your body yet. Your body has not been resurrected and given to you at that point. And so you would go to heaven to be with the Lord and with those who have also died in the Lord. And so sometimes we maybe think of heaven that way and we kind of take that and then extrapolate it out and say the heaven that's in the future when God culminates all of his plans together and finishes it is going to be more of that. And so we take a lot of that spiritual and not physical and we just kind of cast it out that way. But that means no physical bodies, no physical earth, no real relationships or purpose and work and activity. And so we have to we have to see what's at stake here if we mix up the way that the Bible talks about this intermediate state of heaven. If you were to die today and go be with the Lord. And what is this eternal state that believers face in heaven? It is different. Uh, maybe there's another reason why we have kind of embraced a spiritual vision model instead of this new creation model. And that's that we've adopted a lot of human philosophies that tell us that physical things are just bad. Physical things are bad. You know what You know a good comeback for that, though? Think about when God made the first physical things. When he made the first physical things, what did he say about them? They were bad? No, the opposite, actually. They were good. And when he was finished creating all physical things in heaven and earth, he said that they were what? They were very good. They were very good. So somehow we've got into our thinking and, and maybe even just this world or even into the church that we think physical things are bad. But that's not true. God doesn't view them that way. God views the bad as the sin, as the curse, and all that that brings and how it has affected us physically. Uh, I think that there's probably another reason why we get a little mixed up in the way that we approach the topic of heaven, and that's because we kind of uh, get a little confused with certain passages about the Bible. So I'm hoping this morning that we can have some clarity, greater clarity, as to what heaven is like. I don't know if anybody's read a book called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. It's a big book, and it's actually very heavily on the side of the new creation model, which is where I've landed and where the leaders of this church have landed. And he says this in his book. After reading a first draft of this book, a friend sent me an email. She has attended a Bible teaching evangelical church for many years. She reads widely and is very intelligent. She wrote, because I believed that places didn't matter to God, I didn't want them to matter to me. Because I believed that animals didn't really matter to God, I didn't want them to matter to me. Because I believed that my spirit was really all that mattered to God, I didn't let my body matter to me. She was writing, she was glad to be free from these wrong views of heaven. Alcorn continues after that letter. 
He says, if I could snap my fingers and eliminate a single false assumption that keeps us from accurately understanding the scripture's revelation about heaven, it would be the heretical notion that the physical realm is an obstacle to God's plan rather than a central part of it. So we need to have our view of heaven rescued from thinking that heaven is unfamiliar, so otherworldly, foreign, void of time and space, sitting as cloud potatoes, instead of couch potatoes, right? um, or, or boring, or ghost-like, or not physical. That is just flat out unbiblical. So what we're going to do is look at a glimpse of heaven, the new creation, calling it the new creation, through the eyes of the Apostle John. Now remember, as we look at this book, that John was exiled on the island of Patmos in the Mediterranean Sea around 90 AD when he received this vision. And he's recorded it in a book here. Jesus revealed to him, first of all, a vision of the glorified Christ. That's what chapter 1 is about. So he sees who Christ is after he was uh, ascended and glorified. And he looks like someone you don't want to mess with. Um, And then chapters 2 and 3, he receives a vision and, and, and a revelation about an assessment of how the church was doing in that day and age. And then from there on out, uh, chapter 4 to the end, he gets a series of visions about what was to unfold for the end of time. So it's no surprise that this summer, as we've taken the topic of the end times, that we've gone to Revelation so much. Because so much of the book of Revelation covers what happens in the end. So at the end end of Revelation, Revelation 21 to 22, we will be looking at some of the most vivid descriptions of God's new creation in order to increase our longing and our living for the glory of heaven. So let's go ahead, if we could, to the the chart. I want to just give you this last uh, look at the chart. Hopefully, yes, it's up here. So the the first phase we looked at and the first piece we looked at at the beginning of the summer was that the church, that's where we are, will be raptured. Christ will return to the air with us to receive us to himself. And when he takes the church out of the picture on this earth, then there is the first thing that happens uh, with us in him is that he evaluates us based off all the things that we've done in his name and for his glory. And so that's the judgment seat of Christ, kind of the, the, the crown that's placed on your head for all the things that you've done for him. During Meanwhile, there's a seven-year period on the earth where all heck is breaking loose. And there's all kinds of things happening in this tribulation period. Uh, we have, at the end of that seven years, uh, a lot happening. It's like a traffic jam right here, okay? So a lot of things are kind of converging at one point, and this is the great and second coming. When we say second coming, we're talking about that first coming, which was when Christ came as a baby, grew, died on the cross, rose again. The second coming is this grand event. When he comes to the earth, he comes with us because we've been raptured, if you're saved and in Christ. And we come to the earth after the tribulation period. At the end of that tribulation period, a future generation of Israel will be prepared to receive her king. It's exciting. Not only will Israel receive her king, but there will be many who will be saved during the seven-year period of judgment and salvation. But it will be intense. And then we have this thousand-year period that will be established because Christ comes and he separates the sheep from the goats. The sheep enter his kingdom. The goats go down to Hades and there is this golden age. A golden age of Christ reigning 
on the throne on this earth. And it will be radically different than any other golden age our history books have ever recorded. That is a thousand years. At the end of that thousand years, there's a great white throne judgment when, when Hades and the grave belches up all those who uh, have, have resisted God and rebelled against him and all unbelievers will be judged. Not only all unbelievers, but the, the present heaven and earth that has been infected with sin and the curse will also be purged with fire. And then you see Satan and the Antichrist also judged at that great white throne judgment. So if you notice in each of those three things, there's fire. Uh, there, there's fire for the lake of fire for uh, Satan, for the false prophet um, and the beast. There is this new heaven and this new earth that this old heaven and this old earth is is purged with fire. And then you see all those who are not written in the, in the book of life and they also go to the lake of fire, which is the second death. So it, it, the heat really turns up. That's what we looked at last week, the lake of fire and this eternity for unbelievers, eternity for those who are opposed to God, Satan, Antichrist, and all unbelievers. And then now here's this final piece, the new heavens and the new earth. So this is in kind of an eternity forward from this point that we're talking about. Now what we're going to do is look at what he describes in chapter 21. We'll get through as much here as we can um, with the time remaining. Revelation 21 and verse 1. And I'll, then I'll give you your first point. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The first point I want to give you that is a vivid description of this new creation is the coming of the new creation. The coming of the new creation. And we see this in verses 1 to 8. And when he says, then I saw, then I saw, he says this a lot. Then I saw, then I saw, then I saw. And now what he's seeing is a new heaven and a new earth. 
the former one was passed away. At that point in chapter 20, when he said that they were done away with. There's a newness because there's a a radical renovation that goes on with this current earth and heaven. Heaven, the word heaven is not talked about the, the spiritual dwelling place of God, but it's talking about the heavens, the universe, the sky above, everything in our um, atmosphere and everything above and beyond where telescopes could look. So that's what this word is talking about. There's a new heaven and a new earth. It has all been made so brand new. We think about that concept of new. And you think of like a, a new car, right? Um, some of you might have a very old car. It doesn't smell very good, um, and it has some problems with it. And like the little sticks that are next to the steering wheel, um, that's what they look like, sticks. They don't really work, and uh, you've kind of maybe duct taped some things, and maybe you've uh, kind of hit your engine with a hammer a few too many times to try to fix it. Um, and, uh, and, and you look at an, an old car, and you go, it's not functioning the way it's supposed to. It's not getting me to work on time. It's not working, actually, and so I don't get to work. Um, and so when you, when you have a, a car that has died, has ceased functioning for its purpose, you buy a new car, and it has a different smell. Anybody like that new car smell? That's kind of cool, huh? I think they made a candle, a new car smell candle. I'd love to have one of those if anybody wants to get me one. Um, but anyways, uh, you look at this new car. It's just, it's just, oh, cool. Look, the windows go up when you poke this thing. And they go down. And, and you can actually poke it hard and it goes up by itself. And it's like, knows what I want. This is really, this is really neat. It's not so beat up. It doesn't make so many funny noises when you're going down the street. Um, the horn's not stuck in the on position when you drive. So you go around town announcing everywhere you're going. Um, you, you, you look at all of the functionality of this new car, and it's working the way it should. Everything about it is, is working well, perfectly. So too, when you look at, when he says there's a new heaven and a new earth, it has that new heaven, new earth smell to it. It functions the way it should. It doesn't have these problems that are breaking down and falling apart to where that's not the way God designed life to work in this place. Uh, That's not how it's supposed to look. That's not how these relationships are supposed to to work. So we just need to kind of understand what this newness of the heavens and the earth will look, look like and be like. It will be familiar, the earth and the heavens, but it will be new. Familiar to what you're sitting on right now, but so new. So new. Another thing that he talks about here is for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And you go, what? But I like water. I I, I think it's pretty and I want it to be there in heaven for me. Um, Well, you'll get your water. Trust me. This is not saying there's no water. It's just talking about how this is one of the first major differences saying, I think to take it literally, there literally was no sea separating land from land uh, in, in large ways. And so, you know, this... Earth is covered, about two-thirds covered with with um, sea right now. And so you're kind of thinking, well, that's that's going to look a little different. Maybe take some getting used to, but but there will be water because you see water talked about after this, in this, in this next chapter. Uh, there will be rivers. There will be fish. There will be fishing. Anybody excited about that? Yeah, there, if, if you're a fisherman... 
I want you, this is your homework, go to Ezekiel 47 and read the first 10 verses or so. If you're a fisherman, if you care about fish, okay, in the smack dab middle of this new heavens, new earth, there's a river. And, and there's a description in Ezekiel 47. As he walks into the river where it starts, it's about your ankles deep. Then you go down about a thousand feet. I don't know. I forgot the dimensions. You go a little bit further. Then it's up to your knees. And you go down even further. It's up to your waist. You go down further and you can't stand. And guess what? There's fishermen on either side and they're really roping in big fish. And so you need to go check that out. So if you're kind of a little bit concerned, no water, what? Okay, just wait. Okay, there, there will be, there will be all kinds of aquatic life. Just may look a little different in a sense. Okay, so that's one thing that I, I've wrestled with and I look at and go, wait, what? Um, Verse 2, I saw the holy city. So when he looks and he sees the first heaven, uh, this, sorry, this, this first heaven, first earth had passed away, and there's this new heaven, this new earth, he sees a city. It's kind of like if you were introducing a child in class to a country, one of those first things you talk about is its capital, or its capital city, and why that's the capital, what happened there, what happens there, and that's what you're going to see now described for some time. So, he says there's a holy city, it is New Jerusalem, so think of Jerusalem, and you look at it today, is it like a land flowing with milk and honey today? No, it's not. Uh, milk comes from cows, is that right? Um, honey comes from bees, uh, and uh, that just means that this is a very lush land, and it's, I mean, it's really like fertile. You look at Israel today, you look at Jerusalem today, it, you would not describe it as fertile land. And so when you think about a new Jerusalem, whoa, this is like takes our, our view of, of what is there and kind of just like ups its game a little bit, makes it look like almost like a Garden of Eden. So there will be a newness to this Jerusalem when it comes. He's going to describe how it comes. It says, coming down out of heaven from God, and you go, okay, well, that's an interesting picture. Here's this like city that's been in heaven, including all those who have been saved and, and gone to join with him. And now here it is coming down to the earth. Almost like, all right, here's the, here's the new heaven, new earth. What are we going to put on it first? This new Jerusalem. This is what's going to be placed here first. And you kind of wonder, well, how, how, how is this going to look? Or is this going to be kind of interesting or what? He says, yeah, it's like a bride walking down the aisle to the groom. I mean, that's like one of the most precious moments of a wedding ceremony. You see the bride coming down. I mean, the groom, he's great and all, but man, he's got nothing on her. She, she is looking great. And she's coming down that aisle with her beauty adorned to her husband. It's like you see, it's like you see all the people who have ever been saved, all believers in this bride coming to this new earth. To her groom. Verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying. Here's a loud voice. It's important. It says behold the dwelling place of God is with man. God set up a tabernacle. God set up a tent. He's making his dwelling with man. You get to meet with him, talk with him, as if you were to go home today and talk with your family members in your own home. That's very personal, very close. This gets close to home, as it's said. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is New Covenant talk. If you remember when we looked at the covenants 
earlier on in the summer. This is a new covenant talk. So you're starting to see, as this city is coming, its significance as to why it is coming. So God can live with his people forever. Nothing separating us. In fact, the things that used to separate us cause us much pain and grief, don't they? Has anybody had an argument with their spouse this week? Has anybody had uh, something that didn't go the way that you wanted it to go? Has anybody had a hope dashed on the rocks lately? Is anybody kind of still in mourning about something that's happened to you recently? Was this summer really difficult for you? Are there things that you're terrified about coming up? Have you shed a tear recently? Look at verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death, no more. Mourning, crying, pain, no more. Arthritis, no more. Your disease of choice, your sickness of choice, your pain of choice, no more. For the former things have passed away. This is new creation model talk. It's not saying that your bodies are going away, but the things that have plagued your bodies are going away. He's not saying you're losing your relationships and your and your and who you are as a person, but he's saying all those things that have frustrated you from living fully the way God has intended for you are going to be taken away. Those things passed away. So you can live fully in God's New heaven and new earth the right way. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. I love that phrase. I don't know why that just rings. I'm making all things new. Old things, gone. The former things, gone. The things that hinder, gone. The things that hurt, gone. New, new, new. Everything, new. When God makes something new, it's just beautiful refined, purposeful, restored. And he said, John, write this down too. As if John were to stop writing, maybe he dropped his pen or something. And he said, these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to him, it is done. You think of another time where Jesus said something similar to that, don't you? What did he say? It is, it is finished. When he came at his first coming... He had a work to do, a mission to complete. And that was to die, to make perfect and full forgiveness for all of your sins, to set you free from your sin. And so when he experienced the full weight of God's wrath for you on his cross, he said, on the cross, he said, it is finished. Here, the work that God is doing and is accomplishing at this time has been finished, completed. There is a new earth. There is a new heaven And guess what? He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, beginning and end. He's got it covered. He's had a plan. He's implementing the plan. And it's almost as if in verses 5 to 8, John gets really pastoral. He gets really pastoral and he starts thinking about, you know, what to say, you know, to the people who are reading this letter. As he's relaying the words of Christ, you can hear Christ's heart here as well. Listen to this address to you. Listen to this address to you. Verse 6 continues. He says, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. 
What can I do to pay God back? What can I do to get myself into his heaven? This place sounds pretty spectacular. I want a new heaven and new earth. What do I need to pay? Let me dig deep into the pockets of my righteousness and try to find something. And what does it say? Without payment, you can't pay your way into this place. It has been paid. Are you thirsty? Do you long in your soul to be with the Lord? When he talks about a dwelling place, do you look forward to dwelling with God in that place? Do you look forward to what God has designed and what he has planned for all his creation? If you have that kind of thirst in your soul, he satisfies it. He satisfies it. He will give from the spring of the water of life. When you become saved, you drink and you are saved. When you go to heaven, and what he's talking about here, oh, you drink so much more. You have grace that you've experienced now. And you have future grace that is coming, that is like a wave that is good for your soul. So stay thirsty, as it said. Uh, Verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage. So he's saying, those of you who not just said, oh yeah, I'm thirsty for that, that sounds good. Oh, here comes hardship, I'm out of the way. Uh, No, the one who remains stands firm, stays in it, proving that you are truly a lover of God. The one who conquers will have this heritage. He says this, I will be his God and he will be my son. Who does he say that about? Who does God say this about my son? He has one son. It's not me. It's not you. But in Christ, you get to be viewed as special to God as he views his son? Whoa. This is a really unique relationship. So not only has he set up his dwelling place, and he says, come in, but then he treats you in in such a way that You become his child to the fullest extent. Perfect, restored relationship with God the Father. Then he takes that moment to warn. And he says in verse 8, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, he's basically describing those people who are still in their sins. Who have loved their sins more than they love God. Who have not yet turned from their sins and made a break from their sins to follow Christ. And he says their portion will not be in this dwelling place with God, but it will be in that lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, we're going to get uh, uh, the vision the vision of the capital city. Now, let's look at this vision. He says, Then came, verse 9, one of the seven, seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride. So remember the bride imagery used in verse 2? He's talking about this capital city filled of all the redeemed. He says, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. Nowadays, we'd use some kind of drone, right? Kind of, Let me show you this really cool place. No, he, he just took John uh, and, he, and he brought him to a high mountain, showed him the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down. Out of heaven from God. Verse 11. Having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel. Like a Casper. Clear as crystal. 
So this is verses 9 to 11, the vision of the capital. We already know what this bride imagery is talking about, and this is a, a very intimate relationship that you have with Christ. There, you have a oneness, like a husband and wife are one flesh. You have this relationship that is very unique, very unique with Christ. None like it. The Lamb is our groom. We know that's a reference to Christ who has offered himself and sacrificed himself for the good of the bride. And you see the main thing mentioned about this coming of this capital, and it is verse 11, having the glory of God. So it contained a kind of glory of God that was notable. It was this kind of glory that, that shined and shone all around. It, it was radiant, like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as diamond, as, as crystal. So this, this jasper here that, that we're looking at, I'm no jeweler, um, uh, no place you can go, um, but, uh, but if you're looking at this and kind of going, okay, what, what is he talking about here? I think it's really interesting. He's talking about like, you know, almost kind of like marriage metaphor, and then he puts a ring on it, you know, this big old diamond here, you know. Um, it's almost kind of, you know, interesting. You're kind of thinking, wow, this is, I wonder if we get some of that t- today in the way that we have proposals and engagements and all these things. But you look at this, this concept of what is going on in the, in the glory of God, radiant and shining. It's like a very costly stone. Shining light on it, having this prism effect, and blasting out all in these variety of different colors in different ways. It's beautiful. Heaven's capital city is pictured as a huge, flawless diamond refracting the brilliant, blazing glory of God throughout the new heaven and the new earth. That's what John MacArthur says about it. But now, as we look at this capital city, we're going to look at something else in the next few verses, the wall. Verses 12 to 14, the wall. It had a a great high wall. No Trump jokes here. Okay, so a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. And on the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So here, you're looking at a literal wall and walls around this city. That's one thing that you can notice. Heaven is not this nebulous, ethereal, non-physical, non-material place. He's describing it with material words. Talking about walls being built for a purpose. This is a literal city on the new earth. It's an actual, literal city. And you see there's 12 gates, there's 12 angels, there's 12 tribes, there's 12 foundations, there's 12 apostles. Uh, kind of careful attention if your eye notice that. And you look at this, that on these, on these walls, there's these gates. Each of the gates are kind of unique. Look at the gate. Each one of them has the 12 tribes of Israel inscribed on it, written on it. Almost like a header over the door. It's important because... Everybody who's passing through is going to think what? As they pass through and look at one of the 12 names of the tribes of Israel, what are they going to think? God was faithful to his people from the very beginning. 
He's faithful to his people because here we are now dwelling with him in perfect harmony and unity. And not only uh, above, but you also look below and you see that at the gates and on the foundations, you see the 12 inscriptions on the foundations of those who are the apostles of the church. So the names of those, I want to go through the one gate that says, you know, Peter's name on it. I want to go through the one gate uh, that has these different names for the apostles. And to and to look down at them and to think, man, God had to put up with this guy, Peter. And he's still got a, a doormat named after him in, in glory. God is faithful to his people all the way through. And even just entering through the walls and through those gates will be reminders to us when we go in and out. Now, verses 15 to 17 talks about the measurements of the capital city. Again, he's going to talk in very uh, literal terms, in terms that we're um, used to describing things. He says, and the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold, uh, it's probably DeWalt, uh, measuring the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square. Its length is about the same as its width. So that could either be a pyramid, a cone, or a cube. Some people... Sp- like to say, a cube shape. He measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. That's about 1,500 miles. Its length and width are, and height are equal. So the same wide as the same deep as the same high. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement. Why is he talking about human measurement if we don't have a new creation model, Right? If you have a spiritual vision model, you have to look at this and go, I don't know why he's using human terms because it's all just going to be floating and fun on our clouds, which is also an angel's measurement. So no no matter what way you measure it, this is known about how big this is. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. Talks about the foundations of the wall adorned with jewels. Again, you see jasper, sapphire, agate, uh, emerald, onyx. Um, You see carnelian. Crystallite, beryl, topaz, crystophase, jacinth, uh, amethyst, all these beautiful rocks and beautiful stones. And all of them kind of have like a different shade of color, don't they? And when light shines on them, oh man, you can just imagine what how brilliant it is. There. So the measurements of the capital city, uh, if we if we were to take what he's measuring here and put it over the United States. And kind of just for a moment, kind of plunk it down. Um, it would it would pretty much reach from Canada to the Gulf of Mexico, and it would reach from Colorado to the Atlantic Ocean. So sorry, West Coast, you didn't get into. Um, but uh, so that's pretty big, isn't it? That's enormous. There's obviously going to be a lot of room, like Jesus said in John fourteen two to three, when he says, "I go to, to prepare a place for you." He's building on, he's building on as people are saved. And this is, a, this is going to be a beautiful place to enter. It does not mean that everyone in heaven will continually dwell in this place. Some of you are like, I'm not a city boy, I'm a, I'm a farm boy. All right? And you're like thinking, do I have to live in it? Because I prefer, you know, maybe somewhere else in different real estate. This doesn't mean that we'll all live in it. Later on, in verses 24 to 27... It's indicated that nations and kings will be coming in and out of this new Jerusalem. Where are they coming from? Other places. 
Where are they going to? Other places. This is a, this is a new earth. I don't know how much bigger it is, but it's going to be familiar. It's going to be, there's going to involve travel and, and maybe highways and kings and nations and order and structure and, and all of this. So now the, the materials of the capital city are in uh, verses 18 to 21. The materials. As I mentioned, it's so brilliant, so bright, that the glory of God refracts such a breathtaking beauty everywhere from the center of this new heavens and new earth. Pearl, gates, gold, streets, everything is just a shine with brilliance as he's describing what he sees. And then finally, the glory of the capital city. The glory of the capital city in verses 22 to 27. Listen to this very carefully. He says, and I saw no temple in the city. And you're like, time out. Every city that has ever been built from like the beginning of time has a palace for the king and a temple for their God. That's it. That's true. You look around every major city and there's a temple and there's a palace. And here you see no temple. You're like, wait, whoops. Did we forget kind of like the main thing about the city? He says, no, for its temple is the Lord, the Lord God, the almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it. It couldn't. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So here you see the glory of this capital city positioned right in the middle of this new heavens and new earth. Uh, it mentions that there's no temple. It mentions that there's no need of sun or moon to shine. You think about that for a second and you go, well, you know, the Lord is there. His glory is there. He gives it its light. Will there be a sun? Will there be moon? Possibly. It says there's no need for it because he's bright enough. But there still could be some interstellar design or order. But God's glory will be so much brighter. The sun and the moon that currently stand hold no candle to his glory. And by its light, by his light that he gives off, nations will walk. Nations. Again, you see nations and you see kings. So I can't embrace a spiritual vision model when I'm thinking about this because I'm seeing national distinctions. This means ethnic. This means order. This means some kind of structure in society. This means some kind of new economy. This means, this means a lot more than we really maybe think about it when we look at it. When you look at what the nations are doing, you're going, well, what are they doing? They're walking. The kings, what are they doing? They're, they're going and they're, they're bringing their glory into it. What does that mean? They're bringing glory into this place? Well, Robert Thomas, one commentator, says, The glory and honor of the nations refers to the choicest of their treasures, whatever they may be, 
in a time of uninhabited prosperity, their offerings will doubtless be very generous, though they will be different and special because of an increased productivity. So you have all these different kinds of of cultures and, and lands and places that are producing things, and they're bringing their best into the king. If you were to look early on in the book of Isaiah, you'll see that nations are coming and streaming to the Lord. Verse 25 guarantees an open door policy. Never shut, never shut, because there's no enemy to keep out. No enemy to keep out. No scavenger, no raid, no invader, no criminal, no other potentially dangerous person. There's complete security. There's final rest. There's perfect safety in this city. Now, finally, look at chapter 22, and we'll wrap up with just these five verses. Just these five verses. In the final part of this tour through the new heaven and the new earth, he talks about the life of the new creation. Look at the life that he talks about here. I couldn't come up with a C, so I apologize for not alliterating this morning. Um, It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, For the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is the kind of life that we've been saved to. Christ has brought us into the glory of heaven, and it is filled with life. Not death, not dying, not decay, but a kind of life that just keeps coming and coming and coming and and never ceasing and never stopping and never leaving you without but always satisfying, providing. This river cascades down from the throne of God, has almost like its source there, and the Lamb flowing through the middle of the street in New Jerusalem. It shows that God's people are replenished and refreshed. This would be a fun one to take your river rat buddies to, right? (laughs) The Frio is pretty fun, but I'd like to float this one, um, I think. Um, but uh, when he talks about the tree of life, you go, okay, so I see a river of water of life. I see the tree of life. That makes me think of Genesis when that tree of life was there. Well, guess what we've done with our Bibles? Where we've started, we've ended. There are so many similarities between Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. You see so many of them. Here, you see the tree of life, right in the middle. It's got fruit that is for the taking. You see rivers. Didn't rivers flow in the Garden of Eden? Yes, rivers flowed in the Garden of Eden. You see God and His presence with His people in the garden with Adam and Eve before the fall. And here, you see God making His dwelling place with His people. You see in verse 5 of this chapter, he says, for the Lord, uh, sorry, he says, uh, 
Yeah, and they will reign forever and ever. We will reign? He's talking about like kingly terms. What did he say in the beginning when he made man and woman? Let them what? Let them have dominion over all the other created things. He's, he's showing that he has completed what he has started. And he's showing such a beautiful picture, bracketing all time and all. This is revelation is beautiful. This tree of life issues these, almost these supernatural vitamins. Um, not taken to treat illness, because there will be no illness, but to promote this general health. So no GMOs here, I don't think. Um, but the most probably dramatic change that you see, and it's in verse 3, it says that no longer will there be anything accursed. So guess what? The curse that we live in lifted completely. And when the curse is lifted, blessing comes in. And all of God's blessing comes in without hindrance. So that means that you can live in God's world and with God himself and with God's people without frustration and in the right way. You see, you see worship here. His servants will worship him when they see him face to face. And this is uh, one of those things that if you are truly saved, you long not to just be around God's good things, but you long to be right in front of God who is good. Don't you? Sometimes you evaluate your prayers and you look at it and you go, what am I asking God for in my prayers? And a lot of times we're asking for God to just protect us or provide for us and give us good things, give, give, give. And, and, and before we ever look to his hand, we need to look to his face, don't we, in prayer? Do you go in prayer to meet with him and just to talk with him? Or do you just go to God to use him? As a vending machine for your desires. Now he will most certainly bless your socks off in uh, the new creation. But you need to get used to worshiping him face to face. If you don't know what it's like to worship God face to face. You need to learn that. And you can know that. If you're someone who's sitting here this morning going. I don't know what it's like by faith to come to God face to face. I'm distracted. I have something dividing me. There's something in the way. I haven't got there yet. I'm working on it. Whatever you say, you need to know that there is a way that what is in between you and God can be removed. That thing that is in between you and God is your sin. And your sin can be removed. And you'll see when you turn from your sin how sour it was. It wasn't, it wasn't sweet, but for a moment. But there's this bitterness in not just your mouth, but your head and your chest and your heart and sin starts to become so gross compared to what you see in front of you. Instead of holding your sin, cherishing your sin, treasuring your sin, playing in your sin, you found a savior. And you want him, you want to cherish him, you want to treasure him. And he satisfies, not for a moment, like sin does, but for eternity. So if there's any personal charge to to you who are on the fence this morning, spiritually, eternally, you need to embrace Christ. Let go of your sin. It doesn't satisfy. 
Christ alone satisfies. And when you are with him in glory, you will be completely satisfied. You'll have light. You'll have life. You'll have relationship. You have everything that God has designed in the very beginning. Let me end with this quote. This is by Randy Alcorn again on the newness of heaven. He says this, When we open up our eyes for the first time on the new earth, can you picture it? Will it be unfamiliar? Or will we recognize it as home? As human beings, we long for home, even as we step out to explore undiscovered new frontiers. We long for the familiarity of the old, even as we crave the innovation of the new. Think of all the things we love that are new. Moving into a new house, the smell of a new car, the feel of a new book, a new movie, a new song, the pleasure of a new friend, the enjoyment of a new pet, new presents on Christmas, staying in a nice new hotel room, arriving at a new school or a new workplace, welcoming a new child or grandchild, eating new foods that suit our tastes. We love newness. Yet in each case, what is new is attached to something familiar. So when we hear that in heaven we will have new bodies and live on a new earth, that's how we should understand the word, the word new. A restored and perfected version of our familiar bodies and our familiar earth and our familiar relationships. When I was preparing this, I, I read a, a tweet by another pastor. I don't know, it shouldn't have been on Twitter, but, uh, but he, he said, Beautiful Saturday afternoon with a worthy book while listening to Mozart's string quartet in G minor and C minor on the back porch. That, that may not be your version of heaven. <laughs> it may not be what your foretaste of heaven is like, but, but just for a moment, think about what it's like to have a foretaste of heaven. You might be having good friends over. For spaghetti, whatever that is that you eat. Each week after church, talking about God, talking about the sermon, talking about his word that you heard that morning. It could be watching the children play. Laughing about the good things of life. You know, in those moments, those are foretastes of God's glory that is to come. We need to get the wrong view of heaven out of our minds and we need to look at the way that God has revealed to us what heaven is all about. Suddenly it becomes like, bring me there, I'm ready for it. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your revelation. We know that there are a lot of wondering people and wondering and wandering minds about what is in heaven. And Lord, we don't have to wonder anymore. You've given us your sufficient word. And we just want to listen to what you have said about it. We want to declare as a church that it is enough. As we look to your word to find out what is in heaven. We want to declare back to you that that is what we long for and nothing more. 
We want to even humbly admit that there might be things that we have questions about that we want answers to. But we acknowledge that if you have not addressed them directly, then we shouldn't worry about those things so much. We want to make sure that we don't get caught up in the things that can distract us about what we long for in heaven. But that we would be with you. If we could have nothing in heaven but you, it would be worth it. Lord, bring us to a place where we can say that now. That in this life, as long as we have you, there's nothing else that we need to be complete, to be satisfied, to be happy. We just need you. Free us from our sin. Forgive us. And let us see you unhindered. And let us have this new desire growing in our hearts as a church and as individuals who love you to long for your return. Lord, would you come soon? You promised us you would. So we want to live ready each day. In your name we pray. Amen.